In the realm of true crime, every crime scene tells a story. Every story has its truths. These are the stories from inside the crime scene tape that separates fact from fiction. You know, how does someone at such a young age become so hard-hearted? And how, from that, does one break loose later after all this meanness and decide to have a conscience? That's what happened in this case. High school teenagers graduated from burglaries and drive-by shootings to a cold-blooded bank robbery murder. I'm investigative reporter Robert Riggs here with former U.S. prosecutor Bill Johnston with another story from inside the crime scene tape. I covered this deadly bank robbery and Bill sent the robbers to prison, some of them for the cold-blooded execution of an elderly lady known as Miss Ruby. This is a True Crime Reporter Confidential. Every week for 42 years, Ruby Parker paid a visit to the Hopewell Cemetery to tend to the graves of her parents and late husband. The 82-year-old retired nurse was affectionately known as Miss Ruby around the small central Texas town of Normandy, population 600. She was known as a good Samaritan and worked in the hospice program at her Methodist church. The ranching community was established in 1907 on the old San Antonio Road as a stop on the railroad. When the Houston and Texas Railway was being built between Houston and Dallas, the railroad barons placed a town every eight miles on the line. Popular among deer hunters, a sign at the city limits welcomes visitors to the dearest place in Texas, spelled D-E-E-R-E-S-T. The Normandy State Bank was a social institution as well as a financial institution. At teller windows, town folks swapped gossip and speculated about the prospects of the high school football team, the Panthers. On Friday night, most of the town would gather under the giant floodlights at Panther Stadium. Life here, as it did in rural towns across Texas, revolved around high school football, thus the Texas-born term Friday Night Lights. But I digress. The serenity here was about to end. A dozen teenage members of a Houston gang called VCV, Vatos Con Valaros, converged on the Hopewell Cemetery in three cars to finalize their plan to rob the Normandy State Bank. Until now, the predominantly Hispanic gang had been involved in burglaries and drive-by shootings. They drove 100 miles north of Houston to graduate to a higher level of violence. It was 8.15 in the morning. They found the Normandy State Bank was closed. They rendezvoused at the Hopewell Cemetery to discuss their next plans. They went back to the bank. It was still closed. Frustrated, they decided to buy beer at a convenience store. One of the gang members urged them to rob the store and kill everyone inside so there would be no witnesses. His fellow gang members wouldn't go along with the idea they wanted the loot from the bank. Back to the cemetery, 
don ski masks, bandanas, gloves, and bulletproof vest. But their plan quickly fell apart. Confusion reigned. Half of the gang burst inside the bank. The others panicked and sped away in two cars, leaving behind a small Honda Accord. It was a takeover-style bank robbery like the epidemic that was sweeping California at the time, especially Los Angeles, which had become known as the bank robbery capital of the world. They put a gun to the head of the bank's vice president. They yelled that they would blow everyone's heads off if they didn't get down on the floor. They took $170,000 in cash. When they fled, the six gunmen were forced to pile inside the compact car, so two of them had to ride in the truck. As they made their getaway, they wildly shot up the town as they sped down Main Street headed back to the cemetery. About that time, Miss Ruby was pulling in for her weekly visit to plant flowers around her loved one's graves. The gang rolled in behind her in need of a bigger getaway car. They shot her through the car's window, pulled her out, drove over her body. She lay dead not far from her husband's grave. Meanwhile, the county sheriff stopped two of the gang members. They jumped him, took his gun, and pistol-whipped him with it. They blasted their way through a roadblock, wounding a Texas state trooper in the shoulder with a sheriff's stolen sidearm. After a chase, troopers and deputies arrested the shooters. FBI agents arrested some of the other robbers while they were in class at a Houston high school. And they nabbed a 19-year-old female member of the gang getting off a bus in Memphis. It was a senseless murder of an elderly, beloved woman that shocked Texas. Ruby Parker would have probably handed them the keys to her car if they had just asked. Bill, you prosecuted the gang members and you came face-to-face -face with the killers. Help me understand this ruthlessness, this meanness. How do you understand that? You know, how does someone at such a young age become so hard-hearted? And how, from that, does one break loose later after all this meanness and decide to have a conscience? That's what happened in this case. The group that were hanging out together, doing drugs together in Houston, Texas, somehow came upon the notion, eh, bank robbery's cool. Let's, let's rob a bank. And some of the other ones were like, well, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like a video game to them. or It's like teenagers, and they, some of them were teenagers, fantasizing about some silly thing. But they really meant it. And not only did they mean it, they began to plan it. Well, and they were in high school, and they were committing burglaries, doing drive-by shootings, but suddenly they, they graduate to murder. And before they kill poor Ruby Parker, the elderly lady, you know, they go in that convenience store, and one of them says, oh, let's rob this place, and hey, we're going to kill everybody inside. We won't have any witnesses. Like, no, <laughs> not a sense of conscience. How do you get that way? So my thought is about these guys, and not to get social on us, but in most of these instances, complete absentee parents. So these kids kind of raised themselves when they were 10 or 12 and found their affirmation in each other instead of a parent or a teacher, mm -hmm. you know, some positive, a coach. They found their affirmation in, in each other and sort of dared their way, peer pressure their way into greater meanness, greater, you know, uh, uh, I can't think of a good word for it, that the outlandish nature of a scheme grew larger. 
And so that's what happened. And they, like you said, they, they did other things leading up to it. The ringleader was Julius Cephas, and he was uh, completely cold-hearted. His, he had a stare about him when we tried the case in court. He stared this blank, sort of heartless animal stare the whole time. And, uh, yeah, he was the one they tried to reach his level of cruelty and meanness. And he is what I would say sort of led them along down this road. Uh, there were others in the group that were pretty hardcore, but not all of them. And he was the first into the bank. He was. And they intended to sort of swarm the bank, have a good getaway car, which they had. I think Geraldine was one of the drivers of that. But they, they Was she the sole female in the group? She was. And she turned out to be my cooperator. She sort of broke down after all of this. She recognized how terrible it was. She had a real not just a conscience about it, she had a she had a remorse. And she and her lawyer came to see me and said, What can we do, you know, to to make it right for her. And she made a tremendous witness, testified about all of the background, all the behind the scenes stuff that took place leading up to it. But yeah, so they swarmed the bank, went in, you know, it's every sort of customer or teller's nightmare because they went in armed quickly. They overwhelmed the bank. Uh, it's, uh, you see it in movies quite a bit. There's some pretty good bank robbery movies that depict this idea that you the surprise and fear shock. just over in shock just overwhelms the people. So they tend to be very, very compliant. And that's what happened. And the 170,000 cash, did they get into the vault as well? So small town banks have a ha bad habit of leaving their vault open during the day. It looks kind of old timey, you know, you yeah. have this giant door. And so small town banks, um, they become targets because they operate like small town banks sometimes. Uh, and yeah, they got the teller drawers. They got into the vault. They, uh, they, it turned out had a perfect target. Centerville state bank. Well, something happens though. The plan runs amok because half the gang and two other automobiles panic and speed away. They don't go in. And then when the gang comes out, they're stuck with this tiny, compact car, a Honda Accord, and they can't get in it. It was like a clown car and they were clowns. If they weren't Miss mean, it would be funny, but yeah, they were, they were like clowns in a car stuffing in there and, uh, their getaway was less than perfect, but they got away. And unfortunately, you know, they got away to an area that led to more problems. Well, they, they fled to the cemetery where they had met before and to get things together and poor Little Ruby Parker is rolling in to, uh, as she did every week, to tend the graves of her family and her late husband, plant flowers, and she would she would turn the soil over the grave so it was no weeds. And here she comes in, and she's got a big car, and they want it. How terrible. The timing could not have been worse. Yes, Miss Ruby Parker. This is a little old county in Texas, Leon County, Texas, and it's uh, a county mostly of farmers and ranchers. Uh, very little population. The whole county might have 8,000 people in it. And everybody like knows each other. Everybody knows each other. And it, there was n probably the most peaceful place in the world until that day was that little cemetery. And Miss Ruby Parker going to, as you said, tend the graves and to try to make everything nice. And most of these cemeteries are run by community associations. So they have limited funds and the people take care of a lot of it themselves. That's what she was doing. And yes, she was 
as that cliche is in the wrong place and the at the wrong time. And she was uh, in possession of something they needed. Yeah, they wanted a car. And of course, they could have gotten the car by uh, threatening her or anything, asking her. Probably she was so sweet. Mm -hmm. She'd probably give, she, they'd have told a story, she'd have given it to them. Yes. And instead, yeah, they shot her. They dragged her out of the car and took her car. And it gave me a double federal jurisdiction, not just the bank robbery. But carjack, what's called carjacking resulting in death. And I'd prosecuted a couple of those. It was sort of a new statute at the time, but it, it's a, it gave me a big hammer to use. How many of them shot her through the window of the car? As I recall, Julius Cephas shot her. Yeah. And uh, as I recall, that was it, but I'm not, I don't yeah. recall. Yeah. But he, uh, again, could have gotten her out of there with a feather or a or uh, please probably would have gotten her out of the car and she would have let him have it. And maybe their sort of their uh, bloodthirstiness wasn't satisfied in the bank because they didn't shoot anybody. Yeah. Uh, they didn't go to the convenience store and shoot, shoot it up like they thought talked about. And so that this is the route they chose to kill this harmless woman. And so they could uh, not so they could get her car, but at a meanness because there was no need to shoot her. Well, you know, I, I covered the murders, and I, I got there shortly after the all this had happened because there'd been a shootout with state troopers. And it was making news, and I remember being struck in this town. This small, everybody left their doors open in this town, and I was. You were like, "Why this sweet lady?" Because everybody you talked to, they talked about how sweet she was. She helped in the hospice program at the at her church. She'd been a nurse, and. Um, and I remember thinking, who could do this to this, an 82-year-old woman? And she was from the Parker family. The Parker family is one of the oldest Texas families in that part of uh, Texas. And Quanah Parker's relative, actually, the Indian, yeah. famous Indian chief. But the Parkers were uh, from that area. They had peacefully lived just forever in that area. And again, um, probably the most serene place. Yeah. Within certainly hundreds of miles until they showed up, Julius Cephas into the gang. I'll be back after this break. Hello, this is Robert, and I want to ask a small favor. Will you please tell your friends who love true crime to follow the True Crime Reporter podcast? As you know, it's one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement experts, victims, and even convicted criminals. And please sign up for my free newsletter. The form is on every page of my website. Finally, I am so thankful to my Apple listeners who have given the podcast five-star reviews. Your reviews on all of the channels are extremely helpful in spreading the word about this podcast. Now, back to our episode. Well, it was really kind of the start of what we call takeover bank robberies in Texas. And I would find myself three years later in Los Angeles with the FBI robbery task force. And L.A. was the cap world capital for bank robberies. They were happening every few minutes. It was, it was unbelievable. We went out to do it because it had started to happen in Dallas and other cities. So we were kind of like, well, what are the, what are the roots of this? What's going on? You know, that's, that is such a good question. The uh, There was a movie. Sometimes life imitates art in a really bad way. 
There was a movie uh, many years ago. I think it was called Point Break. Point, Point Break. Break. Yeah. Ken O'Reeves and yeah. and these guys. Uh, and it was about a gang in California that wore, they called them the ex-presidents. They wore these masks of Nixon and mm-hmm. Ford and Reagan. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and they would go into a bank just incredibly violently, swiftly, and take it over. And it doesn't give people, it may not give them time to hit the silent alarm. Of course, some do. Yeah. But it doesn't give any guard time to react, and it doesn't give them time to secure things. Now, uh, it's not a secret that there are things called die packs uh, that banks, right. you know, right. there's, I won't give all the details of how it works, but there are, there are um, ways that that banks uh, protect themselves with with die packs, and um, these things uh, go off. And when they do, they mark it with indelible ink. They mark the robber. Um, but when you come in swiftly, sometimes there's not, there's literally not a half a second to respond to get your drawer ready, to shut your drawer, to get under the desk. And that movie really, uh, unfortunately, showed in a very realistic way, the effects of shock and surprise to uh, victims. And that that's usually the problem in violent crime is that it happens so quickly that the victim doesn't have time to plan at all, to respond at all. And that's what happened. Well, I later interviewed the leader of the most prolific bank robbery gang in L.A. They got millions of dollars, millions. He's an older guy. He was recruiting teenagers giving him very little money, but boy, arming them to the teeth with AK-47s. And he trained them that, uh, well, his other people, he, they never saw him. He stayed insulated. But he would be down the street in a vehicle watching, always monitoring. And he trained them to look for the die pack, to tell them not to get the die pack. But what they did, you know, they used shock and awe. They would hit the door a dozen at a time, and they would spray the ceiling with AK-47 fire. And boy, that that's just stopped everything in its tracks. It does. It stops everything and it prevents them from seeking help from law enforcement or their own security quickly. And again, you know, if you have three or four or five bank robbers with firearms, if you had one security guard, what chance does he or she have anyway? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're just outgunned and, and they're surprised. You know, we're in Dallas, Texas doing this show. Dallas, Texas is the home of, of uh, Clyde Barrow and Bonnie Parker. Bonnie and Clyde, oh, yeah. South Oak Cliff or in yes. Oak Cliff in Dallas, yeah, Texas. Sure. And I'm not sure, they're not saying that all that they pioneered this, but supposedly some of their robberies, robberies similarly, they would come in quickly and they would uh, have to- often Thompson submachine guns, which just the look of that's very intimidating. Yes. That's kind of a new weapon at the time. And it's a military weapon, really. Well, and all, they were the first motorized gang. They were out in in cars, V8s, fast. They, they were faster than the police at that time. Right. It was hard to sneak up on someone on a horse, uh, you know, come into town, although I'm sure it was a, little, a bit surprising when the Bass gang and the James gang came in. But, yes, the the, the motorized chance to, to have a fast car to get away in gave, you know, violent robbery uh, some legs. Well, uh, just to go back to L.A., and I spent time there doing this series with Bill Rader, legendary FBI agent. He was the bank robbery coordinator, and he ran all the bank robbery squad and the intelligence and all. And in his office, the walls were papered with mugshots uh, from bank cameras of all these people. And he named, he hung the moniker <clears throat> moniker on all of them. And he pointed out to me, he said, you see these guys? It was two guys 
in black armor, sh- legs, shoulders, black armor. And they were going in with AK-47s. And he said, I, I call these boys the high-impact game gang. They're looking for a fight. Sure enough, two years later in Hollywood, that yes, that big shootout and all, yes. it was them. It was them. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And Bill had just said, these guys are looking for a fight. Well, you know, in, in what you're speaking of, there was that famous video. Of it. They were shot several times and barely flinched because right. they had such body armor right. on. Well, over, over the air, the, the police began shouting, uh, take headshots. They got body armor. Take headshots. Wow. And the there, the police were outgunned. And, it you know, again, it was an event that led to, uh, you know, an arming up with with uh, AR-15 assault rifles and all with the police because. They, and some people and some people complain about the police being too militaristic. And I get any of those arguments. Fine. But. They some places you have to have assault rifles with the police. It's just been a response, you know. It, it is. So you know, speaking of this in the United States is, we can imagine a lot of it. Talking about bank robberies and the almost infestation of bank robbers in a system. I was in Brazil a few years ago working on a fraud case, and I was in Sao Paulo, and I was in the company of a state police officer and some others who are helping us, and they said, let us show you something. We went to the top of a beautiful high-rise in Sao Paulo, Brazil, mm-hmm. and there was this room. It looked like something out of a movie. It had computer monitors lining where the ceiling and the wall meet, and every two feet below that. So there were dozens of monitors, and there were, I think, 15 or 20 people in there at computers and watching monitors. And I said, what? I don't get it. What is this? He said, those are the all of the banks in this state of Brazil, and we're waiting for robberies. Mm-hmm. In other words, it happens so often they literally watch them live. They watch the robberies live. They have all the cam, all these monitors were bank cameras. They watch them live, and they try to dispatch not nine one one call, not the bank. These guys watch it live and dispatch live to the area to try to catch the robbers, robos, and. Uh, I thought, you know, I thought we had a problem. These guys, these guys really have it, but they have it down to a science, too. Well, I saw that, too. You know, when I was covering President Reagan in the White House in the mid-'80s, I went to Honduras to cover the Contra War, and it was a proxy war between the Soviet's followers then, the Soviet Union then, in Nicaragua, and then we had the Contras in being run by the CIA, and it was, it was probably, and I went down to cover it. But I will never forget, it, what, the first thing that struck me is that every bank had a group of uniformed soldiers with M16s standing outside. Where there's poverty, there's a greater motive to rob a bank to get a hold of cash, and those countries have a tremendous problem with it. Well, and I met the assistant to the ambassador there, and uh, wanted some time with him and said, hey, I've got to go out to this Air Force base to get uh, some dental work done. Just ride with me. It's about a two-hour drive each way, and I can give you a briefing down here what's going on. Well, I go to the embassy. The embassy there, by the way, looked like Fort Apache. I mean, it was it was a, <laughs> yes. it didn't look like it was a fortress. We get in a vehicle. It's got thick, bulletproof glass. The doors, it's all bulletproof. We get in. The security guys are in. and they are driving like bats out of hell through this this town, and they would not stop anywhere. Right. And uh, I was like, "Well," and they said, "Hey, we're a target for the robbers. We'll, if we stop, we'll, we'll be shot." 
will be, it'll, we're on, it's on. And they were armed to the teeth inside. And I thought, thank God for the good old United States, right. you know? And, it, and in, with the exception of the cases you talked about in Los Angeles and some up here, it was the, the high school gang that graduated to murder mm-hmm. that takes us almost to another country. You, the, the mechanisms they use, the heartlessness they had, the desperation they had, yeah, it's like you see somewhere else. So, so what was the outcome? The outcome was that everybody was convicted. Um, I needed testimony, and Geraldine Valverde uh, gave te- really heartbreaking testimony in, in some respects about her upbringing and her mm-hmm. relative role in this. And the jury quickly convicted all of them, and they got huge sentences, uh, federal sentences. They're all still there. Uh, the w- ones got the big sentences. but. Had it not been for one of them with a conscience and again with remorse, Geraldine Valverde, mm-hmm. uh, we would not have not have made the case because we knew there were no witnesses. Ruby Parker was had been killed. There were no witnesses to that part of it, and the, other than the bank part, all the scheming and planning, we didn't know. So she gave the whole story, and they were all convicted. And you couldn't prove the, who the trigger man was. Uh, I needed her. I needed her. Yeah, and she was very honest. And how did they react to her? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. She got you know, some scowls, but the marshals kept her very secure and very far away from anyone else so that she would feel as confident as she could. She was in custody when she testified, but she was uh, protected and, and uh, lived for years. She wrote me a letter years ago. Did she get her life together? I haven't kept up with her since she got out, but her remorse and her, uh, the honesty of her character that finally broke through all this harshness, it was still there. Yeah. So hopefully so. And the trigger man, uh, will he ever see the light of day? Shouldn't. Federal federal life sentence. So yeah, he should not should not ever get out. And life means life. Life means life. Nope. Doesn't necessarily mean that in the state system. No, there's Does, no parole in federal system. Does in the Texas system these days. Yes. Thanks to Kenneth McDuff and our That's work. Right. That's right. Okay, Bill. Well, that was a, the case of the high school gang. High school. I mean, they went back and arrested some of these kids in the class at the high school. The FBI got them. But the high school gang that graduated to murder. We'll be back next week with another episode from Inside the Crime Scene Tape. I'm Robert Riggs with Bill Johnston. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness. Please tell your friends who love true crime that they can bypass secondhand tales and get their true crime fix here with authentic stories straight from the source. Tell them that True Crime Reporter is one of the few podcasts where you can hear raw, unfiltered accounts from law enforcement victims and even convicted criminals. And sign up for my free newsletter on the homepage of TrueCrimeReporter.com. It's your gateway to a world of knowledge and awareness in the realm of true crime and your personal safety. 
Thanks for listening, and until we meet again, be prepared, don't get scared. This is Robert Riggs reporting.